Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. One of the great ironies of the world today is that while the problems we face, particularly with respect to climate, must, if they're ever to be solved, bring the world closer together in seeking solutions, one of the ways that we can come together via travel and in person is also one of the supreme carbon-intensive things that we do to harm the planet. And yet the airline industry has committed to at least making the effort towards zero emissions by 2050. Like so much of what must save us from the ravages of climate change, technology lies at the heart of the solution. Along with it, the forces of the market, of innovators, investors, entrepreneurs, and scientists must move with the same vision that the Wright brothers took to create the idea of flying itself. Telling this modern story is my guest, renowned British journalist Christopher de Belague. Christopher de Belague is a historian and journalist known for his reporting and books on the Middle East and environmental and ethical issues. He's a frequent contributor to The Economist, The New York Review of Books, and The Guardian, and a recipient of the British Foreign Press Award. And it is my pleasure to welcome Christopher de Belague here to the Who, What, Why podcast to talk about his newest work, Flying Green on the frontiers of a new aviation. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, it is a delight to have you here. I want to first talk about whether or not there really is the desire to do something about greening aviation. We hear the airline industry, and you read about this in the book, the airline industry talking about it. How much of it is sincere? How much of this is a real effort in your view? I can't get into the head of the um, industry executives. I can't get into the head of the CEOs of United Airlines and British Airways and Airbus and Boeing. However, what I can tell you is that there is increasing pressure on the industry, both from consumers and also from governments to do something about this very hard to abate sector. It's hard to abate because of very strong scientific and uh, technical reasons, but it's become harder to abate because the sector has been so late and so tardy in developing the uh, technologies that are needed in order to get to that target of net zero, which I would remind you and your listeners is only an aspirational goal. It's not enshrined in any law or treaty. It is merely an aspiration. And what we need to do as consumers uh, is to hold the industry to account and to make sure that it uh, strains every sinew in order to achieve that goal. Is much that's happening with respect to technology happening because technology and investors and entrepreneurs are doing this to a certain extent on their own, knowing that it will find a, a reception within the airline industry, or how much is being driven by the industry itself? That's a very good point. And the industry will, of course, point to uh, areas in which, uh, for example, airlines have invested in uh, synthetic or sustainable aviation fuels. Uh, they've invested in plants that will one day produce um, gallons and gallons of biofuels that will enter the, the tanks. They are, in the case of Airbus, for example, they, are, uh, they have a project, they have a plan um, to, by 2035, to run uh, regional routes on a, uh, by combusting hydrogen. All of these things are being done by the industry. But um, my sense is that this is happening late and it's happening um, without enormous enthusiasm. What we, what we need to do is look beyond the advertised or ostensible goals of the industry, which is to get to, to um, net zero by 2050, and see how much actual money they're committing to this. If you look at 
um, sustainable aviation fuels, which is basically a, a, a marketing ploy. It's, it covers everything from fuels that you create out of thin air to something that you will create from maize or from sugar. So it's a vast gamut. But if you look at the amount of um, sustainable aviation fuel that was consumed in the United States last year, or produced and thereby and therefore consumed, it was 60 million gallons. Whereas the amount of, of non-sustainable, ordinary kerosene, Jet A as it's otherwise called, that was, um, that was consumed in 2019, which was a banner year for the industry, was 18 billion gallons. So we have an idea of just the enormity of the shortfall that needs to be made up. When we look at where technology is going, do we see potential tiers in this, that, that there may be an early stage that, that has to do with these biofuels and that other things will come later? I think you're absolutely right there. And I think the thing to identify in the early stage is um, different forms of sustainable aviation fuels. They can go into an existing air airframe. As you know, when airlines buy an airplane, they don't want to throw it away after 20 or 25 years. They want to use it for as much as possible. And they, if possible, they want to sell it on when it gets a bit old. Um, and the advantage of sustainable aviation fuels is that it can go in. It's a replacement fuel. It's a top up fuel. And eventually um, you will be able to fill your your tank with it 100 percent. If you've flown, flown out of LAX um, at any time in recent years, you will have been the recipient. You will have been the beneficiary of a very small amount of sustainable aviation fuel. So it is, in fact, being used at present. Problem is that some of these fuels are not so green and they have themselves a problematic um, carbon intensity. That is to say that they're producing, uh, they are producing um, greenhouse gases. Others, um, for example, uh, creating fuel out of thin air, by that I mean you draw carbon dioxide out of the air using direct air capture and then you fuse it with hydrogen that has been created from using an electrolyzer and that produces a fuel that is a carbo uh, that is um, that has exactly the same uh, properties as, as jet a kerosene that's um, that's made from oil um, but is uh, if it's provided it's done using uh, renewable energy um, doesn't uh, is carbon is carbon neutral um, whether whether you're doing either whether you're following either of those routes uh, the, the question is whether you can produce the fuel in sufficient quantities sufficiently quickly um, so I think that biofuels as you suggest will be an early runner um, in Europe there's a lot of um, there's more fuel being produced from uh, waste and fats um, and then we will start getting into the middle uh, period of our transition, which will involve hydrogen. And hydrogen can be uh, useful in an aeroplane in two ways. It can be combusted, as Airbus is hoping to do, or it can be used to, uh, to power a, uh, a fuel cell, uh, which is a kind of reverse electrolyzer. And essentially, you're creating electricity um, by using hydrogen. Uh, and that can get you um, really quite a long way. Uh, again, there is a problem because hydrogen, in order um, to be useful, you need to have a lot of renewable uh, energy in order to produce it. And then you need to reconfigure the, air, the, the airports and the whole infrastructure around aviation needs to be reconfigured, which is a massive investment. It involves not only the airlines, not only the airports, but also um, 
uh, government uh, intervention as well. And then finally, this kind of holy grail, um, which everyone loves to talk about, and is by far the most glamorous of all these different routes to um, net zero aviation, and that's full electric. And that has problems of its own because we, at, at present, we don't have the battery power. Batteries simply aren't powerful, powerful enough to carry large numbers of people for long distances through the sky. Talk about the reconfiguring of, of airports and what exactly would be required, why it would be such a monumental undertaking. Well, at present, what you generally happen with airports is that you have uh, large quantities of jet A air fuel being, being um, trucked in um, on tankers and then being stored on site and then simply being poured into the um, into the machine. All of the uh, all of the preparatory work has been done off site. Um, hydrogen is, is complicated because if it's in liquid form, it needs to be stored at minus 235 degrees Celsius. So that requires um, uh, quite a lot of pre- preparation in itself. It is also um, it, it can also be potentially extremely hazardous. Um, so you can you can you can bring it in in liquid form, or you could potentially bring it in in uh, in gaseous form. When it's up in the sky, you've got to regasify it if it's in liquid form in order then to um, to use it either to combust it or to put it um, to use powering a, a fuel cell. Um, so all of these elements require quite a lot. If if you're going to, for example, um, bring it in uh, in gaseous form and then you're going to liquefy it on site, that would require an enormous amount of energy. And it's been computed that if you were to try and do that at Heathrow, um, it would require four small modular nuclear reactors to be working all the time in order to, to make that happen. So with all of these different technologies, you have an, an enormous requirement of, of energy, and that energy has to be green energy, it has to be renewable energy, and that um, not only is difficult to achieve, but also there's a huge amount of uh, um, competition for that green energy, and there are other sectors that are also clamoring for that green e- energy. And it's arguable that some of those sectors are more important than aviation because aviation is, for the most part, a leisure activity. And how much do we uh, allocate resource to a leisure leisure activity as opposed to an activity that might seem um, much more intrinsic to our to our everyday lives? Talk about it in an everyday sense today. What, if anything, is being done to simply make the current system more energy efficient and a little bit more green based on what we have now? Based on what we have now, there, there are different things that one can do. And essentially what the airlines have been doing is um, uh, it's useful, but it isn't enough. Um, what they've been doing is they've been improving uh, fuel efficiency by something in the region of, of, of 1% a year for the last decade or two. Uh, and But we think now that they've probably reached the end of the road in terms of improving fuel efficiency. Um, there's a new um, Rolls-Royce engine, for example, and the same is, is true of Pratt & Whitney and other edu- engine manufacturers that are trying to have an exponential uh, um, or a much more significant saving in energy and um, to pack much more power uh, for the fuel that is put in. Um, but they are in development. Um, essentially, what you're doing is you're you're running down the lifespan 
of the existing fleet before you get round to the much more uh, difficult question of clean sheet technology, uh, which is to say redesigning the aeroplane. So it actually looks rather different. If you were going to redesign an aeroplane to carry hydrogen, you would have to um, take into account the fact that it's much more voluminous. Um, it takes up a lot more space than, than Jet A. And probably what you would do is you would store the hydrogen in um, in much um, in, in the interstices of the wing um, or indeed in the fuselage. So you might have a much longer fuselage on an aeroplane and the aeroplane might look rather different to the way it looks today. The problem with clean sheet technology is the regulators get very involved and also uh, the airlines find it very, very uh, costly. And because every single uh, um, change needs to be signed off by the regulator. And then, of course, there's the the, the great fear, which is that safety will um, will rear its ugly head and that you might end up in a position where you have a crash early on, which would, of course, set back that technology hugely because then the public would themselves start saying, well, do we want to get in a plane um, whose, whose safety hasn't been um, hasn't been verified to the extent that we would we would like it to be. How much of the problem comes from the fact that there are really three, at least three legs to this stool, and that there's the airline industry, there's the airplane manufacturers, and then the engine manufacturers? I, I think I think I, I tend to tend to look at it um, as the industry the industry as being um, as as working really towards the same goal. Um, I think that the engine, uh, uh, the way that the uh, that the airplane is put together is that you have an airframe and then you go to an engine manufacturer and you say, I'd like um, this airplane, this this engine to go in it. But the actual driving force, uh, as I'm starting to discover, and it should be remembered, Jeff, that I came to this subject um, as someone who was interested in it, but as someone who was a very much an outsider. One of the interesting th things that I've um, discovered is the driving motivation towards um, the greening of aviation, or one of the key factors, is the demand of customers. And so, for example, uh, the cargo and the freight industry are very keen to lower their carbon footprint. And what they will do is they will go to an airframe manufacturer and they will say, this is what we require. And then they will start um, the negotiations with the, um, uh, with the engine manufacturer as well. Uh, and the airlines are one in very important part of the industry, but also the cargo uh, industry is also extremely important. So, for example, DHL, for example, FedEx are very much, um, Amazon, are very much leading this effort uh, to decarbonize the industry because they require that for their own carbon savings. Why is that? Why, are they, why is the, the cargo industry more aggressive in this regard? It's a very good question, and I'm not sure that I have a completely um, pre-prepared answer for you. I would I would imagine that the cargo industry is beholden to um, its customers uh, and would like to present uh, a much more green image. It may be that the cargo industry has intrinsically within itself a kind of um, a kind of green agenda that it wants to um, promote with greater sincerity um, than, than the airlines. No one would accuse the airlines of being aggressively pro-green or pro-environmental in any shape or form. They're being dragged, kicking and screaming into this process. Um, that's not to say that within the airlines there aren't um, extremely sincere reformers and reformists who will do all they can in order to advance this agenda. But the airlines, I wouldn't say, are leading this. 
it's it's more the cargo customers. Are there any individual leaders within the airline industry that have emerged in this quest? I, I, I'm very impressed by someone called Glenn Llewellyn, who is at Airbus, and he's in charge of their um, their green effort there. But it's difficult for me as an outsider to ascertain how much power and how much investment the airlines are actually putting into their flagship green initiatives. Uh, Boeing, so far as I know, is not going towards hydrogen. Boeing, so far as I know, is much more interested in using SAF, um, uh, sustainable aviation fuels. Uh, and But I do think um, that the situation is evolving. And I think that the position adopted by the airlines and by um, ICAO, which is the, the governing body of the aviation industry, has evolved uh, significantly over the last five years from really not having a goal to then committing to at least an aspirational goal of going net zero by 2050. And then we will have to start to see whether there are measures that governments now need to implement in order to hold the industry's feet to the fire and say, you need to get there and actually you need to get there quicker because the industry built into the industry's um, uh, projections is the idea that they have until 2035 in order to get the different technologies lined up and developed and then they will start cutting emissions. In fact, emissions need to start they need to cut to be cut now and they need to be cut much, much quicker. Uh, and there's one obvious route to cutting emissions, and that is to raise prices and to make people think much, much harder about whether they're going to fly and to fly only when it really matters to them and when it's much more important to them. That's not something that the airlines would like to hear. One of the things that the airlines always has, you touched on this a few moments ago, that the airlines can always use to push back on is the issue of safety. I mean, that that's their, their ace card. Talk about that. Well, I think that's right. And I, 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 I'm, not, um, I'm not, again, within the airline industry, so I can't, um, I can't say too much about um, uh, um, the way that the airlines... Uh, approach the question of safety other than as you say to double down on it as a um a, a, as a as a, a a reason um for being much more cautious than they might otherwise be i don't necessarily blame the airlines entirely for that because i think that the consumer the consumer public is also very concerned about safety and in the us um the faa and the equivalent regulatory bodies in europe and the uk and elsewhere and elsewhere um, have the final say on any new design technologies that are going to that are going to get off the ground. So I wouldn't I, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe um, necessarily ascribe cynical motives to this. Um, I do think that actually in the past we've seen occasions um, where safety lapses have happened and there have been appalling crashes. Um, and I think that the government that the that the paying public is also interested in safety. Um, the paying public is also interested in price and has got used to the idea of flying incredibly cheaply. We are going to fly more expensively. It is going to become more expensive to fly um, because of supply chain issues, um, because uh, there is less of an abundance of the workforce, the labor force that existed before the pandemic, and also fluctuations in the oil price. Um, what we need to do is increase incentives and also increase taxes so that from both sides of the of the fiscal equation the industry realizes that it's in its best interest 
to uh, invest more heavily, both in time but also in money, in these technologies that would allow them, as you put it, to return to the spirit of the Wright brothers and to become really a force for good uh, again in the world. There is a sense, though, that the entire industry and airports around the world and the infrastructure of those airports have really evolved and grown to the point where it is based on this idea of extensive and cheap travel, people basically taking planes as they might have taken buses years ago. I agree. This this stems back to um, liberalization, which started in the U.S. in the 1970s, then spread to Europe. And as emerging uh, industrializing powers like India and China um, and uh, Brazil and elsewhere, Indonesia have started flying in greater, greater numbers. Consumers there, too, are getting used to the idea of flying. They're getting used to the idea of flying cheaply. It should be borne in mind um, that probably 80 percent of the world's population have never been in in an airplane. And were um, uh, aviation to develop into the mass activity that the industry would like it to develop into, then we're going to have an even more serious problem on our hands. What we all need to be doing is, is as individuals, is flying less often. Um, of course, we need to be allowing those who haven't flown before to enjoy the same privileges that, that we who do fly often uh, enjoy. But at the same time, uh, this isn't um, an issue that we can fudge. Um, If you fly a transatlantic flight, um, for example, from Berlin to San Francisco and back again, you are producing more greenhouse gases than the average non-airborne citizen of Nigeria or India is doing in a year. And so there's a massive imbalance here. There's a massive climate injustice is being perpetrated here. And we need to bear that in mind and we need to we need to conduct ourselves and, and limit our flying accordingly. Talk about where in the world some of this cutting-edge technology is taking place with respect to some of the things you've touched on. Well, I think electric is very strong in in where you are on the west coast of the United States. Um, EV tolls, electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles are are, that's really one of the one of the cradles of this emerging technology, um, which isn't going to help the climate crisis very much unless it has an impetus. Um, towards in further improvements in battery technology so uh, batteries can take you further um, and take more people further. But actually, um, when you're looking at electric, it really matters where your electricity is generated from. Is it renewable? Is it green um, electricity or not? So that's one, of the, um, that's one of the things that one needs to consider. SAF or biofuels, um, again, the US is uh, a world leader in that. Um, largely because um, so many of your ground, so much of your ground transportation is run on um, on biofuels, and I think what the aviation industry would like to do is, as the ground transportation in the U.S. and elsewhere switches over um, definitively and irrevocably to electric, then all of those um, enormous fields that are currently growing maize. Um, and other crops that get poured into um, the tank of, of, uh, of automobiles in the U.S. will be turned over um, and be used for aeroplanes. Again, there's a, there's a green prudential problem here because um, you've got to farm those crops much more environmentally, in much more environmentally friendly fashion in order um, for that to be a truly green solution. Um, 
Then you've got something called electrofuels, which is um, involves sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and then uh, out of the air and then fusing it with hydrogen, um, which is being created using an electrolyzer, and that um, that is much stronger in Europe. Um, there's a plant. Um, there's technologies that I visited in in Dresden and also in Switzerland, which are going to combine um, and using thermal energy uh, created in Norway. Um, there, the, the, a plant is now being built that will uh, that will um, uh, produce electrofuels. Um, uh, hydrogen. Uh, that is also ha happening. Uh, for example, I visited. Um, a, uh, a company called Zero Avia in the UK, um, which is repurposing existing um, small aeroplanes, uh, Cessnas and Dorniers and, and that kind of thing. And um, that will be uh, powering a, um, a fuel cell. They, they think that they can get to 70 seaters within five years time. And that would be extremely interesting. And that would make them um, pretty much an industry leader. Um, if they manage to do that. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, Airbus are also doing hydrogen, only this time through the combustion route. Um, and there are, there, are other, there are other technologies that are much earlier in development. Um, you know, some people are talking about how do you power, how would you power an aeroplane um, using nuclear fuel um, and uh, all sorts of other biofuels that... Um, are still in development. So one of the interesting things about this subject is that one doesn't really know exactly who's going to win the race. And in, to, to an extent, it, it is a race. And yet, from my perspective, they've all got to win because there is, there is such a large amount of aviation and none of these uh, technologies on its own is going to be able to carry the burden. To what extent is, is nuclear a realistic possibility? I don't know because I didn't I didn't um, I didn't look closely into nuclear because I was I was told that we are a very very long way um, from being able to square that with any kind of safety concerns, let alone the technological um, uh, challenges that that would pose. So I haven't I I didn't actually look very closely into nuclear. I don't think it'll happen um, for a long time, and I think um, that essential question of safety will um, loom very large. There are entrepreneurs who are looking into the question, who are trying to develop it. Um, in fact, people have been talking about nuclear-powered aeroplanes for uh, well, way back since, um, since the beginning of the Cold War. Um, but whether that will happen on a commercial scale, I, I don't know. Of all of the, the things that you saw that, that were being worked on, which ones did you think were, were, A, the most exciting, but also the most practical, the ones that really had a chance to make an immediate difference? I would say that hydrogen has a good chance in the medium term. Uh, it's abundant. Um, it, um, its green credentials are pretty good. Uh, if you put it into a fuel cell, all you're doing is producing contrails. That's the only kind of noxious um, emission that takes place. Um, if you burn it, then you do get um, nitrous oxide. Um, but at the same time, you're drawing it from uh, you're drawing it um, from water. So you're not its production um, shouldn't involve any emissions. It does need a lot of energy. And, uh, and I think this is where all of the technologies uh, have 
really are questions to answer is how you assure yourself of, of renewable energy that isn't more badly needed by other more vital sectors of the economy. I do think hydrogen has a very has a very positive future. Um, I like to think that electrofuels have a positive future because they are incredibly exciting. The idea um, that you can create a fuel literally out of thin air and water is remarkable to me. Again, a lot of renewable energy required. And then if you can, in the next 50, 60, 70 years, if you can develop battery technology to the extent that you can carry large numbers of people over long distances, then obviously um, full electric is, is amazing because then you're not emitting anything at all. And finally, do you sense that there is any kind of clamoring for this among the flying public? To what extent is the flying public aware of this and sensitive to this? Do you have a sense of that? I think the, the flying public is starting to become more sensitive to this. I think they're starting to realize that each time they get into an airplane, they're contributing enormously um, to the climate problem. Um, having said that, it, it's a microcosm of the choice that everyone, all of us, we all make every day of our lives, whatever we do on this planet, is, um, you know, that it, it's the immediate needs and it's, it's the moral conundrum that we all face every day. So I'm definitely not in a position where I, I sit in judgment um, on anyone at all. But I, I do think that people are starting to become more aware of it. And I hope that in time, that will drive a change in behavior, a change in conduct, but also a much more critical view on the part of the paying public uh, with respect to the airline industry, with respect to the um, aviation industry in general. Um, the aviation industry has been cosseted and it has been privileged for a very long time. It, it pays negligible taxes. The airlines do not pay tax on jet fuel. They don't pay. Uh, there's no tax levied on international air tickets. Uh, if you look at the number of years in the past 20 when the airlines have paid corporation tax, um, you'll be surprised by, by how few they've paid corporation tax. So it's a largely untaxed industry um, that has got, got away with um, uh, being very late to the party, or the decarbonisation party, and is now arriving late in the day and needs to perform, needs to up its game. Christopher de Belleg. The book is Flying Green on the Frontiers of New Aviation, just out from Columbia Global Reports. Christopher, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.